And it's been an absolute pleasure, as we've seen Chris and Alice lead this service and the openness to the Spirit, as I said, and the beauty of all that God's doing here in the evening. But I, or Hanau, will tend to get wheeled on for special occasions. And one of those special occasions will be asking for money, um, because no one else wants to do it. So here I am. I'm not asking for money tonight, so you're all okay. Um, Or really, we see it as our primary job to um, set values for the church and also talk a bit about the vision of the church, where we're trying to get to. And you won't have heard us talk much about values in this service, but we're going to be starting to talk more about that kind of thing. They're doing planning a great series here called Who Are We? Or What Are We? Who Are We? Who Are We? Um, which is on the values of the church, what it means to be church together. If you want to hear two values that are very close to my heart and Hanel's heart and therefore will be close to the church's heart, it's number one, we're going to grow this church through conversion. We want to see this church grow because people are coming to faith and people are becoming Christians. We do not want to grow this church through transfer growth. That happens. It's an inevitable part of what happens. And particularly people come from other churches and I get it because they're traveling into central London and they want something a bit more local. That's a brilliant reason. There's many good reasons to come to this church. Second, one reason is you're going central and you want something local. That's great. Second reason is that the church you were going to before isn't focusing on ministry and the power of the Spirit and you come here and you realise we do. That's a good reason to come. Third reason is there's some churches in surrounding areas that don't emphasise the fact that women can lead at all levels in church. And if you've been a part of a church like that and you're coming here because you know there is no ceiling for leadership for women, that's a very good reason to come here. Any other reason, there's probably many other good reasons, but any other reason there's no reason to come here really. Um, Other than we are praying here at St Peter's that we would see a local move of God in Brockley but also in South East London. So firstly we want to see people come to faith. That's going to be the heartbeat of this church and Al and I would say that we're primarily evangelists and that means that we love you and we think you're brilliant but what we would really love to see you released to do is to talk to your families, to talk to your friends, to talk to your work colleagues and to take the presence of God that you're in enjoying in here, out there, and see them come to know Jesus and find fullness of life in him. Second thing that's really close to our heart, and I've hinted at it already, is ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. There's far too many attempts to do Christianity without the power of the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you this, Christianity is impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit. If we are not focusing on being filled to overflowing with his power and his presence, then anything that we try to do in the Christian faith is going to be futile. It's not going to work and we're going to burn out and we're going to find ourselves at the lowest of lows and we're going to bottom out. But we need to constantly rely on being filled to overflowing again and again and again with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can do what we're called to do. Anyway, I wasn't going to say any of that, but I've said it now. Um, so what is the vision of this church? Well, I used to not believe in vision. I used to hate vision talks because I'm like, someone stands up in front of a group of people, they give it the big one and say they're going to save the world through the church. Absolute nonsense. Remember, when we talk about the vision of church, church is all of the people of God in London, in the UK, globally. It's anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus and decides to live for them. That is the church. And so we all share the same vision. And so in a way, when I start to hear about the vision of the church, being the saving grace or a particular church saving grace to the world I just think that's far too much emphasis on one person's particular reading of what the vision of the church should be however I do feel like it's important when we talk about vision that we talk about a vision that God has given us as a particular church in a particular place at a particular time with a particular 
people group. And so therefore, it is important to have something to set our sights on and to be able to work towards so that we can not drift in a way. Because I think it's very easy in the Christian faith to drift if you don't have a focus, a sense of which you feel like God is calling us as a, as a body of believers in this area to aim towards. If we don't have that, sometimes it feels like we're able to drift and we drift into lots of different things and therefore we lacked a sense of direction and purpose. Now, what is um, vision? What should vision be? Well, it really... the. You go to the Bible for the vision of this church. You go to the Bible, I would argue, for the vision of every single church. But there are different emphases that get picked up over the years. 40 years ago, 50 years ago, do you know what the most quoted and read and looked up scripture in the Bible was on the internet, if they had the internet that long ago, um, certainly since they started picking up these kind of stats, the most quoted or, or searched scripture was um, Jesus, John 3.16, um, uh, whoever believes in me will have eternal life. I, wait, what is that scripture? Oh my goodness, that is horrific. What? Fact, thank you. For God so loved the world that he sent his over, only son that whoever believes in me will have eternal life. Obviously not an important scripture at all and one to forget. Anyway, it makes sense that 40 years ago, that was one of the main scriptures because really the emphasis of the church in that time was that we need to point people towards the fact that when they die, they need to find out about eternity. That there is a truth that Jesus points to that when we die, we need to know fullness of life in him so that we can move on into eternity because our life on earth is but a breath of air. And so that became one of the main scriptures in which, and it led to lots of different things and abuses of that scripture where it was turn or burn, um, or you're not going to live, like lots of kind of emphasis on hell, that sort of thing, but also great kind of emphasis on that scripture where it became the evangelistic drive of the church in that time. Now, fast forward to millennials primarily filling up benches or seats in churches. Do you know what the most quoted or searched for scripture in our time is? or was, certainly was a couple of years ago. It's Jeremiah 31, where God says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, and not to 2911, there we go. <laughs> Style well, isn't it? Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Okay, that was the most searched for. It's interesting, isn't it, the shift there. There's a shift from people needing to know that there is an eternity and that they need to trust in Jesus so that they are able to have fullness of life in him and go forward into terms you have eternal life and there's a shift now onto almost like a millennial inward looking of we need to know that God loves us and that he's got plans for us and he's plans to prosper us and not to harm us and I would argue as a result of that, and that kind of, it's big trends, isn't it, in this country, but I would rather argue as a result of that, what we have seen over the years is a church that's become a little bit too inward looking. Whereas previously it was very much outward looking, but not really inward looking at all. Now I would argue it's become incredibly inward looking and not much outward looking as a result. And so I think what we need to rediscover, and I'm not saying I'm the only person who has rediscovered this or anything ridiculous like that, what you'll hear talked about a lot in church at the moment is the biblical grand narrative. So the grand narrative of the Bible that enables us to realize that as a church we fit into the bigger story of God. So we fit into a vision that God had already started many, many years ago, brought to completion in the person of Jesus and now uh, desires to bring to completion on earth through us. So if before uh, the vision was really about pie in the sky when you die, 
Then it became cake on the plate while you wait. Jeremiah, you're going to enjoy the, the thing now. What I want to say for us as a church is as we start to think about looking back hours, it's not just cake on the plate while we wait. It's cake on the plate for our mates. All right? Just came up with that earlier, about an hour ago. And I'm going to persist with it um, until it makes no sense. Probably now. So... With that in mind, the vision for this church is to bring heaven to southeast London. So, like I said, contrary to popular thought, Christianity is not all about how to get to heaven when you die. Instead, Christianity is about partnering with with him, with God, in bringing heaven on earth now. That is the grand narrative of the Bible. So before we get to the how, let's answer the what. What is heaven? What is it that we're partnering with God to bring? Well, heaven is not a nightclub in Swindon with wall-to-ceiling mirrors and a sticky floor. Heaven is also not cherubs firing love arrows around looking very happy. It's not angels riding on unicorns. Heaven is nothing short than the fullness of the presence of God. If you like, let's call it God's space. It's where God dwells, God lives. So what is earth? And here we've put southeast London. That's just because that's where where we are. Well, earth is the fullness of the presence of humanity. For us, it's southeast London. It might be Broccoli, might be Ladywell, might be Greenwich. Don't know where you come from. Could be anywhere. But it's generally around here, isn't it? It's our homes. It's our workplaces. It's our families. Let's call that our space. And here's the grand narrative of the Bible. Here's the point, really, of Christianity. God's space and our space were never meant to be two separate places. They were supposed to always be one and the same space. The central narrative of the Bible is God intends his space to become one and the same as our space. And we see this throughout the Bible. So it starts in the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? So we see as God creates the world and the narrative slows down at the pinnacle of the creation story and he creates Adam and Eve, he breathes into humanity. It doesn't get much closer than the space of God than being breathed into so that they come to life. And there's loads of beautiful metaphors in the Genesis story of the creation with the rivers flowing and rivers represent the presence of God and this idea that God walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening and they're filled with the infilling of his breath, bringing them life. God's space and our space were one and the same space in the Garden of Eden. That's how things were created. That's how things were supposed to be. But then, of course, there's Genesis 3 and there's the fall. And in the fall, what we see happen is essentially there's a cause to this. Adam and Eve believe a lie about God and they believe a lie about themselves. The first lie they believe is that God is not good. I like to say God's not nice and he, doesn't, and he doesn't like me. Whereas the truth was God is nice and he likes them. But they believed a lie from the enemy that God isn't nice and he doesn't like them. He's withholding from them. He's withholding his presence. He's withholding eternity. He's withholding heaven from them. The second lie they believed was that they could do something in order to become more fully divine. So the snake says to Adam and Eve that if you eat of the tree of good and evil, then you will become like God. Now here's that's why that's a lie. They were already like God. 
They had his presence and his breath breathed into them. They were made in God's image and likeness. We're going to come back to that. So anyway, as a result of believing those two lies, Adam and Eve turn their back on God. And as a result, sin enters into the equation. Now sin, really, if you want a good definition of sin, it's just a life turned in on itself. And it's all the consequences that flow from that selfishness, hatred, division, war, oppression, anxiety, everything that comes out of that original sin where the lives are turned in on themselves. And as a result of the fall, God's space is no longer compatible with our space and the two are torn apart in the fall. Because God, who is perfectly holy, who's set apart, is above everything, cannot, cannot be in the same space as sinfulness, as destruction, as disunity, as hatred. And so what you see in the early stories, the story of the Bible of Genesis going into the Old Testament is these two spaces unraveling in the story of God's people. But thankfully, it's not the end of the story. And God, because he loves us, because he wants us to experience fullness of life, because he wants to dwell with us, he has a plan to bring those two spaces back together. Now, the beginning of that plan is the temple. And that's where all the kind of temple stuff comes in in the Old Testament. And these temples were created to look like the God of Eden. So they were adorned with all these beautiful pictures of the Garden of Eden. And they believed that in the temple there was the Holy of Holies where the literal presence of God dwelt. What did they do about sin? What did they do about selfishness? What did they do about destruction and hatred and disorder? Well, they used to practice something really strange that we wouldn't really understand now, but it was animal sacrifice. And in some strange sort of way, when they sacrificed an animal, it was like this animal absorbed all of the bad stuff, absorbed the sin, and enabled, in a particular moment, a particular time, enabled God's space and our space to be one and the same again. But it was fleeting. And only one person could really experience that, the great high priest who went into the Holy of Holies so as to take the people before God and God before the people. And so that raises a problem because it meant that the rest of humanity couldn't enjoy the presence of God. It was only really ever meant to be a temporary measure. So what was the ultimate sacrifice? Well, the ultimate sacrifice, of course, is the person of Jesus. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he's both fully God and he's fully human. Now, what this means is he inhabits God's space and he inhabits our space. And the beauty of Jesus dying on the cross is that he brings with him the fullness of the presence of God, but he also represents us on the cross and because he was sinless he was perfect in in every way he was able to take upon himself absorb if you like like the animal sacrifice but in a much more powerful way that we'll never be able to explain or imagine absorb the sin of all of humanity and destroy the power over it once and for all so God's space and our space can now be one and the same space in him heaven fills earth Again, here's how he articulated it. This is like his manifesto, if you like. He said this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to claim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. This is cake on the plate while you wait. We don't, get to, we don't just enjoy this in heaven when we die. We get to enjoy this right now in the person of Jesus. So are you here and do you feel like you are poor? It might be literally poor. It might just be poor in spirit, by which I mean you've come to the end of yourself. You're saying to yourself, I have nothing left 
to give. I feel at the end that the good news is Jesus has come for you. Are you here and do you feel like you're imprisoned? Sometimes we're imprisoned by the effects of sin. Other people's sin upon us, our own sin, and it feels like it's a burden, it's a weight on us that feels like we're imprisoned by sin and we're unable to live lives of freedom. Well, the good news is that Jesus has come to set the prisoners free. Also, recovery of sight to the blind. Are you here because you feel blind? You feel like there is no purpose to your life. You feel like you can't see things as they really are. You feel like there is no overarching vision or ultimate purpose to your life. Well, the good news is Jesus has come to open your eyes and show you what your life is all about. Are you here and are you oppressed? Do you feel like the evil and the sin and the oppression in the world is on you and you feel completely anxious and weighed down by depression? Well, Jesus has come and he's come to lead us into wide open spaces and to set the oppressed free. The way he kind of explains it there, he says it's to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Now, that was all about something called the year of Jubilee, which the Jewish people practised every 50 years. Every 50 years, they would almost symbolically return to Eden, return to the time when God's space and our space were one and the same place. And the way that they did that was they set all the prisoners free. So if you were in prison in year 49, happy days, you only do one year, straight out, year later. They would divide all the land up equally again. They would release all of the slaves and the prisoners. And it was supposed to be a tangible example of what it's going to be like when Jesus comes. The Messiah comes to set everybody free and reset everything and bring things back into order. To bring God's space and our space back into one and the same place. And Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is on me and I'm bringing heaven again to earth. Paul puts it like this. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. So fullness of God in person and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. See that? Heaven and earth becoming one and the same place by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. When he dies on the cross, he takes upon himself everything that is causing the separation between the two places and he destroys the power of it once for all. But of course, that's not the end of the story either, is it? Because we know that three days later, Jesus is raised from the dead. He has to be raised from the dead, otherwise he wouldn't be fully divine. Because if he couldn't defeat death, then he was hardly worth a saviour investing our time or energy into. And when he's raised from the dead, he destroys the ultimate power, the ultimate consequence of sin, which is death. And and if we live in him, he then ascends into heaven and he promises the infilling of the Holy Spirit. He ascends to heaven because he says, better if I go, because everyone, then everyone who believes in me can be filled with the Holy Spirit. What's that? It's God's space invading our space, becoming one and the same space. The fullness of heaven, the fullness of the presence of God coming right into the center of who we are. And that's what happens on Pentecost and it's what's been happening in the church ever since. And this can happen right here, right now for anybody sitting here. God's space can become your space. But Jesus, this is a beautiful way Jesus puts it, or John gets a vision from Jesus in Revelation. It says, it's like I stand at the, the door of your heart and I knock. And anyone who opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with you. There's no better analogy of God's space becoming our space and inviting somebody in to come and have a meal. And that's really a Jewish euphemism for I will come and start a relationship with 
you. And the beauty of that analogy is Jesus doesn't intend to simply stay in the dining room eating a meal. He wants to be invited to the living room. He wants to be in every single room of our house as he fills us with his presence, as everything in our life, our space, becomes his space. And we realize who we truly are. So anyway, how does that link to our vision, this idea that we are bringing heaven to southeast London? Well, it's only when we invite Jesus in, we get filled with his presence, right? God's space becomes our space, but that isn't the only thing that happens there. In that moment, when God's space becomes our space, we also get infected with his purpose. We start to catch the same vision that Jesus had that we talked about there where he says the spirit of the Lord is on me. And this is where the church comes in. The church is the fullness of God who fills everything in every way, Paul says. So Jesus, yes, is the head of the church, but we are the presence of the church on earth. And our job is to fill everything in every way with his presence. And so that's why we talk about bringing heaven to Southeast London. Everywhere we go, we are taking God's space and we are filling the world space with his presence. The spirit of the Lord, you could say, is on us to bring good news to the poor, to set the prisoner free, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, to open the eyes of the blind, because his spirit lives in us. This is where we become cake on the plate for our mates. So how do we do this? Because that's that's quite a lot of pressure, isn't it? I don't know if you feel pressure about that. I feel quite a bit of pressure about that, that we're supposed to be the presence of Jesus, the presence of God everywhere, out in in our workplaces, with our friends, with our family, with our colleagues. How are we supposed to? Here's the beauty of the whole story, and here's how it all links back to Genesis 1, because the truth is we were created to do this. This is a natural part of our created identity. What do I mean by that? Well, here's what uh, the creation of humankind. This is the moment in Genesis where God creates humanity. He says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now there's been more written about these two verses by theologians than any other verses in the Bible. Why? Because it gets to the core of identity. It gets to the core of who we are. I would argue it also gets to the core of our purpose. Two biggest questions that people ask, who am I and what am I here for? These two verses and the verses I'm about to share in a second, they explain exactly what that is. But we have to do a bit of digging because we need to understand what image and likeness actually means. You see, those two words aren't used anywhere else in the Bible other than to refer to idols of foreign religions. So in ancient Near Eastern religions, they used to create wooden and stone statues, and they used to believe that the God in whose image these statues were made would fill these statues, and then they would place them in other kingdoms as a sign of that God infecting the other kingdom with the presence of that statue uh, in whose image it was made. They used to go through all these weird birthing rituals for these wooden and stone statues. They used to feed them water and all this kind of stuff and food and send them out, and it was a way of expanding the presence of that God in question. Now, this is written, this creation story is written as a polemic of some of the ancient Near Eastern creation stories. So the other creation stories were all about many gods who had wars of all sorts of kinds, destruction, and as a result, humanity and the world came about. Now, the difference with the one true God of Israel was that God revealed himself to the Jews and said, there is but one God and I made you in my image and my likeness. 
And this is the profound thing that the writer of Genesis is saying here. Whereas the idols, the wooden and the stone idols of other ancient Near Eastern religions were mute and dumb, they couldn't do the job that they were created to do, the idols of God, us, humanity, were literally filled with the breath and the presence and the power of the God in whose image and likeness we were created. What does that mean? Well, it makes us fit for purpose. What's the purpose? Well, just a little bit later, next verse, he says this, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. This is the key. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. See, often when people think about Genesis or the Garden of Eden, they think that everything was perfect. Everything was as it was supposed to be, and there was nothing to do. Adam and Eve were just to sit in a hot tub, sipping cocktails and enjoying everything that they had been given by God, but they actually had a job to do. And their identity points to the purpose that they were made for. What was their purpose? They were to fill the earth. All of the chaos outside the Garden of Eden, they were to bring order to. In other words, God's space that they were created in and living and that they had inside of themselves was to become this one and the same as the world's space. How were they going to do it? They were just going to be themselves. Created in his image. Created in his life. Do you know what this does? It takes the pressure off us. How does it take the pressure off us? It takes the pressure off us because what's happened when, what happens when we become Christians? When we give our lives to Jesus, we choose to trust in him. We're told by Paul that we become new creations. Do you know the word there is less new creation, it's a recreation. We become the people we were always created to be, made in the image, made in the likeness, carriers of the power and the presence of God to take his power, his presence out into the world and fill everything in every way. So one thing really I want you to hear, to hear tonight over and above everything else, if we want to, do, if we want to live out our purpose we first need to be filled to overflowing. In order to fill, we've got to be full because then there's an overflow. And so really, there's a brilliant verse um, that Paul talks about in Ephesians 5. He says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery and all sorts of other things. Instead, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, how much more will God the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? The context of that is the Lord's Prayer. What's the Lord's Prayer? On earth as it is in heaven. This is the way we're going to get the job done. This is how we're going to realise who we are, which is a big question we all have to answer. Who am I? And this is also the way that we're going to live out our purpose. What are we here to do? We're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to be constantly reminded of our identity in Him, that we're made in His image, his likeness, that Jesus recreates us because of his death on the cross, that his space, God's space, becomes our space. We become one and the same. And we are living, walking, talking idols of the power and the presence of God out in the world and to our friends and to our family and into our workplaces. And we bring his presence on earth. So I guess the question really is, are we up for it? And I think... One of the best ways of being up for it is to learn how to open ourselves to God's presence. We have to keep coming back to God and asking him to fill us. And so often 
we fill our lives with business and so many other things other than the presence of God that we forget to fill ourselves up with the most important thing. The only thing that can tell us who we are, the only thing that can tell us what to do, the only way we're going to be able to live out our purpose on earth is being filled to overflow with the presence of God. Can we move the chairs? Do you mind? Let's shift all the chairs to the side.